Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As the coronavirus spreads, we look at how New Englanders are preparing, including instructions on self-quarantine. Then when you get home, um, you want to get into a place where you're confined and um, be ready to be there by yourself without social contact for up to two weeks. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next, how a government can enact and enforce a quarantine order. And many people are stocking up on food and supplies. But what about our neighbors living paycheck to paycheck who may already be struggling to feed themselves? We have folks who are working multiple jobs. We have folks who are currently experiencing homelessness. Plus, after the only black woman in Vermont's House of Representatives was targeted by a white nationalist, that sparked a legal debate over racial harassment and free speech. For two years, we lived in my husband's childhood home feeling unsafe. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Coronavirus is on our minds right now as the pandemic continues to spread around the world and the U.S. So that's where we're going to start the show today. A growing number of people in New England are taking matters into their own hands and self-quarantining, staying at home as a precaution. In Boston, WBUR's Carrie Goldberg looks at what's required to self-quarantine. Lenny Marcus and his wife have already walked through the scenarios together. What happens if one of them has potentially been exposed to the coronavirus and told to self-quarantine? Marcus is the founding co-director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard, and he figures he'd bike home from Harvard Square to Brookline. In the case of my wife, she's going to walk home. And then when you get home, um, you want to get into a place where you're confined and um, be ready to be there by yourself without social contact uh, for up to two weeks. In his house, Marcus says, there's a family room with a bathroom, so he and his wife figure whoever is exposed to the coronavirus could hole up in there, watch TV, and have food delivered to the door. Discussing these plans can help not just pragmatically, but emotionally, he says. Because once your mind knows that there's something to do and you start doing it, you actually calm down. With little testing available for the virus, self-isolation is a precaution for some people who've traveled to high-risk countries. Dr. Rochelle Walensky of Massachusetts General Hospital thinks that's a good idea. She's the hospital's chief of infectious diseases. Self-isolation is not fun, Walensky says, but it's doable. What we're really asking you to do is stay in your bedroom, stay in a sort of small area that won't infect other people, use your own towels, clean your surfaces, use your own bathroom, really just be careful. If there are visitors, it's the person who's self-isolating who should wear a mask, not the visitors, Walensky says. If you want to have the pizza delivered, have the pizza delivered and leave the 20 under the door (laughs) and then pick up your pizza. Like those things I think are really reasonably okay. 
Some people might see self-quarantine as stigmatized in a typhoid Mary way, Walensky says. But one could also say, like, thank you. You're, this is like a total pain in the neck. It's really hard. It's really isolating, literally. And thank you, because what you're doing is trying to protect me. And I think that that's really, really important to understand and could become even more important to understand if the number of Massachusetts residents in self-quarantine grows in the coming weeks. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Goldberg. So what if a quarantine isn't a choice but is required by the government? We asked Wendy Parmet. She's director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University, and she says the process for quarantine depends on the state. But in general, the state needs to have a strong public health reason. And she says the quarantine itself has to be reasonable. In other words, the state, at least ideally, should not impose a quarantine unless it's really necessary, unless it can't achieve the same public health benefit through a less restrictive means. Okay, then. But who decides what's necessary? Parmet says that's generally the role of the State Board of Health or local health departments, depending on where you live. And the federal government can get involved, too. The federal government has the authority, CDC, has the authority to quarantine people when it is reasonably believed to be necessary to prevent the spread of a quarantinable disease. And that's defined, actually, by an executive order. Um, And from keeping that disease either from coming into the country or crossing state lines. There are two types of quarantines, Parmet says. Voluntary, which is more of a recommendation and mainly what we've been seeing now, and involuntary. Quarantine orders themselves, they're forcible. Um, Government can put police officers outside the door. Um, All states have codes for what happens and, you know, civil and potentially criminal penalties for actually violating orders. But what Parmet says is more important than worrying about people breaking quarantine laws, which she says is rare, is helping people follow recommendations to prevent the spread of coronavirus. She and her colleagues have published an open letter to Vice President Mike Pence and other state and federal policymakers outlining the steps they thought would help. And one key step was making it economically feasible for low-wage and gig workers to stay home when they're sick sick pay, unemployment compensation, some form of economic relief for the many people in our society who don't have access to sick pay, who can't telecommute and work from home the way that many, you know, professional workers can. Without that, Parmet says some people could be in a difficult spot, forced to choose between a quarantine for the public good or not paying the rent or getting fired. So far, President Donald Trump has called on Congress to enact a payroll tax cut and says he'll consider other relief for workers and businesses. Another area where money matters is shopping for supplies. As New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, many shoppers are stocking up on groceries and other essentials, but not everyone has that option. The last few weeks, groceries and big box stores have been packed with customers. Many, but not all, are stocking up on canned goods, frozen entrees, hand sanitizer, if you can find any, 
On an unusually balmy night this week, Lily Ruderman and Josh Garcia, who live in Holyoke, Massachusetts, were shopping. I'm doing it to appease my mother because she is stocking up, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. <laughs> and also, I yeah, we just want to have everything we, we need. We follow the stats pretty well. The, the information is worrisome, but it's not, like, scaring us too badly. In their basket, rice, other non-perishables, stuff for the freezer. Make a list of... Um, You can start with your pantry. A decade ago, Kathy Harrison wrote, just in case, how to be self-sufficient when the unexpected happens. And then add toiletries, sanitation, the things that we have all the time that would be really hard to do without. When Harrison wrote about preparedness, she was raising small children, including foster kids, in rural Cummington. There were a lot of power outages, and in an ice storm, you needed a chainsaw and a tractor to get to a doctor. Could she provide hydration for a sick kid at home? Yes, if she were prepared. But stocking up is not an option for many people with low or no income. Stacy Dean is at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in Washington, D.C. She says federal food assistance or SNAP benefits are wide-reaching, but they're limited. So the notion that folks have extra space in their budget to... Um fill the shelves in case of either a bad storm or a quarantine is just not something that uh, people in poverty experience. And SNAP benefits arrive on a calendar once a month. If the storm or the pandemic hits at the wrong time? You may not have anything um, available to purchase food. You may be in that that last week where you're counting on um, food banks or stretching meals to get through the week. The federal government does have guidelines for providing more food aid in disasters, and some members of Congress are trying to temporarily increase benefits. And those food pantries, they're also preparing for a coronavirus outbreak. We offer free meals, so each of the days that we're open, we have a breakfast bar, a delicious and very nutritious... Lev Ben-Ezra is the executive director of the Amherst Survival Center, and she says many people are already navigating food instability. We have folks who are farmers, we have folks who are working multiple jobs, we have parents, we have senior citizens, we have folks who are currently experiencing homelessness... Emergencies place a disproportionate impact on people with the least resources, Ben Ezra says. The center's basic readiness plan for now is to deliver food to people, bring it out to the parking lot if needed. But the situation is changing daily. And so can we really be prepared? Can we know exactly what action steps are going to be needed three days from now, a week from now, six weeks from now? No. Can we be prepared in the sense that we know what resources we can pull from, that we're thinking about these things? Yes. The Amherst Survival Center gets a lot of food from the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, which serves on average 90,000 individuals a month through pantries and shelters around the region. In an email, they say they're working with FEMA and national volunteer organizations who are experienced in helping out in other kinds of disasters. If you're out there shopping, Kathy Harrison suggests, if you can, do what she's doing. Throw a package of diapers in your cart. And then if I can drop those diapers off at the food pantry, because they're $18 a box, and that's $18 that that family has to spend on spaghetti sauce and pasta, Parmesan cheese, and some powdered milk. Getting ready for coronavirus is about more than what you're stocking up on, Harrison says. Your community may get smaller for a time, and whether you live in an apartment building or a house, she says, get to know your neighbors. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Maine was the last New England state to have a presumptive case of COVID-19. 
Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg reports that schools around the state had already begun stepping up their hygiene and emergency practices. Before snack time inside Charlie Courier's first grade classroom at South Elementary School in Rockland, students line up behind a sink and wash their hands one by one. A self-described germaphobe, Courier says she's prioritized instruction in hygiene, particularly at this young age. In fact, she even teaches a whole mini-lesson on it in the fall. At the beginning of the year, we do do whole group practice, just teaching them that you don't just squirt the soap on your hand and wipe it off. I actually show them you have to scrub it all over, scrub your fingernails with warm water soap. It should be at least 15 seconds. And we even watch a video on hand washing from YouTube. Wash, wash, wash your hands. School administrators say many of these practices are just extensions of what teachers in schools try to do every year, particularly during flu season. But they've taken on a particular importance as cases of COVID-19 continue to grow in the United States. South School Principal Justin Bennett says his school has also installed new hand sanitizer stations and hallways, and custodians are using extra strong disinfectants in classrooms and buses. But Bennett says he's advising families and teachers to stay calm and follow guidelines from agencies such as the CDC. Just more communication with parents about hand washing and not sending their kids to school with coughs and fevers and other sort of respiratory type illnesses. And the same with staff. Uh, just maybe out of an abundance of caution, we're, we're saying, if, if, when in doubt, stay home. The Maine Department of Education is giving similar advice to schools and has asked them to keep parents informed to reduce any anxiety. Jonathan Shapiro, the department's school safety and security coordinator, says the state has also been working with schools since the fall on updating emergency protocols and is encouraging them to collaborate with health and public safety agencies. Use uh, those professionals to uh to uh, create a plan if you don't have one, and to get those relationships going now because those are the key stakeholders you're going to be interfacing with when, when and if a problem happens, right? One goal for schools has been to devise plans to keep classes going, even if teachers are out sick or buildings are forced to close for extended periods of time. The state's university system says it's already preparing to continue classes online. And some public high schools have already piloted online remote school day plans, too. Luke Shorty is the executive director of Lee Academy in Penobscot County, which he says is actually working around an extended closure of schools that it operates in Daegu, South Korea and Shanghai. He says the instructors and students there have been using video conferencing and other tools to continue classes after the schools were closed due to coronavirus concerns. They're reading, they're writing, the whole nine yards. So I've just been very impressed with how uh, the technology has allowed us to do that. But Shorty cautions that the same online approach would be more complicated in rural Maine, where many kids rely on free or reduced-price school lunches, and many families are still without Internet access. And so that would be the largest struggling point for Lee Academy in doing that, uh, is making sure that every student would be able to have access to those educational resources. And so that would be the challenge. But at some main schools, the coronavirus outbreak has actually provided a teachable moment. It is only about a virus, not about um, the Asian people or the Chinese people. So that is the point we want to share. 
Arvin Ma is a senior at Freiburg Academy in Western Maine, which has about 90 international boarding students. Ma says as the news of the virus began to spread, he and other classmates have seen racist videos online and heard jokes on campus. So about two weeks ago, he and the Academy's International Club organized a presentation for the whole school to clear up any misinformation or fear about the virus and to make students from affected countries feel safe and welcome. We have a lot of students from Asian countries, and because of the outbreak, they cannot go home during the February break. So um, we encourage people to be very nice for them. Jonathan Shapiro with the State Department of Education says that overall, he's encouraged by the fact that schools and communities have had weeks to prepare and should be in a strong position to respond to any potential challenges in the coming weeks and months. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Colleges across New England are going to online classes. High school theater productions are being canceled and school trips called off. Hunter Murado was planning to spend spring break in Italy on a class trip, but that was before the outbreak of coronavirus. The entire country is now under quarantine. Hunter and his classmates have tried to get a refund, but the student travel agency says they'll only give a voucher. Hunter is a junior at Conard High School in West Hartford, Connecticut, and he joins us in the studio to talk about it. Hey, Hunter. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Who made the call to cancel the trip? So it was the mix of the tour company, EF Tours, our superintendent, and the world language department supervisors. And were you disappointed when you heard? I was disappointed, but also not surprised with the issue that's going around around the country, around the world. You know, I, I was very disappointed, and yeah, so was a lot of my friends that were going on the trip, too. Yeah, what was it that you guys were looking forward to doing in Italy? Just getting away. Personally, I'm a photographer, so I was excited to take some photos that, you know, I wasn't able to do in my backyard, per se. You just get to see Italy in calendars or Googling for the fun of it, you know? Yeah. Have you gone out of the country before? I've never been out of the country. As a matter of fact, I got my passport specifically for this trip. So this is a big deal. It was a big deal, yeah. Let's talk about the cost of the trip. What did it cost, all-inclusive, for for each kid? Uh, $4,000 plus two fifty that went to our school. Everyone had to deal with that money differently. And that is a lot of money for some. And for some, it's pocket change. So money's awkward for everyone. And we all wanted to go for that price. That's why we and our parents said, go for it, you know? Yeah, we're, for some of your peers... This was a big stretch, as you're men- mentioning, right? Do you Can you talk about what sort of steps they or their family members had to go through to make it possible? Yeah. Um, for some, it was getting another job, students having to step up to the plate to get that money. Um, for me, I just said I really want to do it. We looked at other things that I could possibly do this year and outweighed those costs too. When you heard that the student travel company was going to give a voucher instead of a refund. How did you feel about that? I was on the fence about it to begin with because we paid for this year. I don't know where I'm going to be next year, and as well as the seniors. Right. A year is a long time, whether you're leaving the school or you have one more year, you have three more years. Yeah, exactly. Has the school attempted to negotiate with the travel company? Absolutely. Our district, our leaders have been transparent. They have done everything they can to 
help us out. They're fighting just as hard as the students and the parents that are concerned in trying to get our money back. They, as well as all of us, were disappointed with the voucher. Hunter, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. This past weekend, I made four soups and put them in the freezer. We've stocked up on rice and beans, toilet paper, tissues, and soap. And we'd love to hear what you're doing to prepare for a possible quarantine. Or maybe you can't prepare or think you don't need to. Tell us about that, too. Record your comment on your smartphone and email it to us at next at ctpublic.org. That's CT as in Connecticut. So again, it's next at ctpublic.org. And if you're looking for coronavirus information for your state, chances are your public radio station's got them. We'll link to those resources. Plus, we've got a map of how many COVID-19 cases are in the region at our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, after the only black female lawmaker in Vermont State House is targeted by a white nationalist, the debate over racial harassment and free speech heats up. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. It's been more than a year since the only female African-American representative in Vermont State House stepped down. Kaya Morris resigned after becoming the target of a white nationalist who lives in her district. She was the second black woman ever to be elected to the legislature in Vermont. Vermont Public Radio and the investigative online newspaper VT Digger have teamed up to look at what happened. And a warning— Some of the reporting you're about to hear is disturbing and includes racist comments from the white nationalist. VPR reporter Peter Hirschfeld has the story. At the Congregation Bethel Synagogue in Bennington, Attorney General T.J. Donovan steps up to a podium. It's January 14, 2019, and his office has been investigating alleged racist attacks against State Representative Kaya Morris. As Donovan looks across the room, he acknowledges many of the state's leaders. Curtis Reed the executive director of the Vermont Partnership for Fairness and Diversity uh, is here. We have many uh, state legislators with us today. Uh, Senator Dick Sears is here with us. Senator, thank you for being Many in the room had been calling Senator on Donovan Ryan to deliver justice for Morris in the form of criminal Jim charges Carroll against the vowed white nationalist Max Meesh. Meesh had targeted Morris with racist language on social media. Why Morris? Well, until a few months before this press conference, she'd been the only African-American woman serving in the Vermont legislature. Months after this press conference, Max Meesh shared his views on race with me. I believe white people are the best. I believe that white people have created, made everything for everyone. The automobile, the aeroplane, indoor plumbing. Yes, white people are the best. Mish says he did use Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to target Morris online. And at this press conference today, Morris says those comments deeply affected her family. For two years, we lived in my husband's childhood home feeling unsafe. Never sleeping peacefully because we had to be vigilant. 
So this press conference is a big moment for T.J. Donovan. He's an ambitious young Democrat who's expressed interest in running for governor. Donovan says he understands why Kaya Morris was so fearful, says he understands why Max Misha's racist speech made her feel so unsafe. Kaya Morris was a victim of racial harassment. Relatively few Vermonters have had any of these experiences, and very few have had any of these experiences in a context of vicious racial harassment. But Donovan goes on to say this vicious racial harassment is not a crime. Speech is protected even when it's offensive, hurtful, and demeaning. Speech must be protected, Donovan says, even when it causes a black lawmaker to cut short a political career. The court tells us that where speech involves public officials or matters of public concern, the First Amendment tolerates a great deal of speech that is hateful and offensive. In regards to the threats against Kaya Morris, I find the statements presented to us in this matter, while racist, insulting, and degrading, are not subject to prosecution. VPR and VT Digger have obtained the full investigative file at the AG's office. We wanted to learn more about how the state's top law enforcement agency handled this high-profile case of alleged racial harassment. We wanted to learn more about Donovan's decision because people of color across Vermont had been watching this case closely and because Donovan's decision continues to resonate. We spoke with Mia Schultz a few months after Donovan announced he would not file charges against Mish. Schultz is biracial and she lives in Bennington. She says the message from the attorney general and the rest of the criminal justice system was clear. It says to me that somebody who is as intelligent as her and well-liked by the community still can't be protected, basically for no other reason but the color of her skin, really. So when she's not being protected the way that I know that if it were somebody else would have been protected, then you know you're not safe. I can't possibly be safe. So that's the message that the police department sent me and T.J. Donovan sent us, that we don't matter and that we're not protected. There's no question that Max Meech targeted Kaya Morris with racist speech. That's a matter of public record at this point. Where the controversy arises is here. Did Misha's behavior fall within the bounds of constitutionally protected free speech? Or did his tweets and his taunts cross a line into criminal harassment or violate Vermont's threatening law? Donovan continues to defend his decision not to bring charges against Misch. His ruling, however, shook a fault line that reverberated well beyond the Green Mountain State. On the African Diaspora News Channel, an online news network out of Texas, its founder, Philip Scott, had this to say in a video on YouTube. So black people aren't safe in the state of Vermont when your attorney general, the top law enforcement guy, states that you can be harassed, threatened, and terrorized by a white supremacist, and he is okay with it because it's freedom of speech. Black people are not safe in Vermont knowing that guy is the attorney general of that state. Our reporting on this case has raised as many questions as answers, one of which I posed to T.J. Donovan last summer. We have a law that recognizes speech, right? But a lot of people are feeling like that law does not recognize the harm that is inflicted by that speech. Yep. So uh, is there a need for some kind of statutory intervention to address that side of the equation? That is the question that we're all struggling with. It's a question that racial justice leaders, including Kaya Morris herself, are still trying to provide answers to nearly a year and a half after her decision to resign. What to do with the speech is to acknowledge that it is a part of a a system of terrorism 
It is part of a system of attempted subjugation. It is attempted silence. It is the denial of humanity. And so from that, there can be harms. Harms that we'd learn much more about as we continued our reporting. We wanted to learn more about Kaya Morris and her path to Bennington and the State House. Here's Peter Hirschfeld again with the story of what led her to run for office. It's mid-January of 2019, and Kaya Morris is standing on the steps of the Vermont State House in front of a crowd that's gathered for the Women's March. Morris had resigned from office four months earlier. As a woman, and especially as a woman of color, my courage must work towards the eradication of issues of race, gender inequality, class inequality, and the promotion of our human and civil rights. Morris is still involved in the state's racial justice movement. She serves as director of the Vermont Coalition on Ethnic and Social Equity in Schools. But it turns out that Morris has been at the intersection of policy and politics since she was a little girl, growing up in Chicago in the 1980s. Morris's childhood fell during a historically significant chapter in the city's civil rights movement. Her family was included in a documentary a few years ago by the New York Times. Many black residents were concentrated in the worst neighborhoods, with the poorest in vast government housing projects. The world of the people who live here bears very little resemblance to the American dream. Valencia Morris and her three daughters would eventually live in one of them. There was garbage, junk on the outside of the buildings. Even in kindergarten, first grade, my daughters would get beat up on the way home from school. Valencia Morris is Kaya Morris's mother, and the documentary is about a first-of-its-kind voucher program that tried to integrate some of Chicago's poor inner-city families into middle-class white suburbs. In the late 1970s, Valencia Morris was a single mom to three young girls. She succeeded in getting one of those vouchers and quickly moved her daughters into a mostly white community in the suburbs. But life as one of the town's only black families wasn't always easy. I would go out in the morning to get in my car and there would be rotten eggs thrown on the windshield and all over the car. The girls would tell me that people would call them names. They would call them nigger, baboon. Kaya Morris is also interviewed in the documentary and she says that childhood experience was fraught but also formative. I'm proud and honored to be the first person of color ever to come out of Bennington County. I'm the first black woman to be elected into the House in 25 years. If we were not given this opportunity, would I be here today? There's someone that deserves that chance to have the energy to do the hard work that it takes to get ahead. And you can't do that when you're under the weight and the oppression of poverty. You just cannot. After graduating high school, Morris attended the University of Illinois. Then she left home, first to live in Washington, D.C., and then to Seattle, where she worked in the arts community. To this day, Morris is still a spoken word performer. She recently composed a poem after visiting female asylum seekers in Honduras and El Salvador with the international aid organization Oxfam. After living in Seattle, Morris moved back to Chicago and finished her college degree. She ended up getting what she says was a great job with an online travel company until the recession hit and she lost her job in a round of company layoffs. And um, so I started just traveling and looking around and had some friends out this way, came out to visit and fell in love. Fell in love with Bennington, which reminded her of the bucolic wilderness she'd grown fond of in Seattle. 
Morris, who lives in Bennington with her husband, James Lawton, and their young son, wasn't too put off by the lack of diversity in her new hometown. I know what it's like to be a person of color in a place where you feel like you're one of the only ones. But she says it took some getting used to. When I first moved here, I was kind of struck by how... I wasn't um, confused by it, but I remember being struck by how um, few persons of color that I actually saw Mm. on the streets or in in town. I remember walking into a cafe and having this distinct moment where there were two black gentlemen at different tables, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a convention. We're all getting together. Over time, Morris says she began to sense that African Americans were having trouble weaving themselves into the social fabric of Bennington, herself included. In 2013, she attended a leadership program in Washington, D.C. Morris says a mentor at that program told her she looked sullen and despondent when she talked about her professional life. When she talked about her volunteer work in the community, though. There's a difference. You change. You know, you see stand taller. There's a palatable excitement, excitement and passion. Have you ever considered running for office? Morris had not, but the idea stuck. My name is Kaya Morris, and I'm running for state representative in District 2-2. And I want to thank you for being a part of this conversation. That's Morris in a campaign video in 2014 during her first run for the legislature. As a wife, a working mother, and an aunt, I understand fully the challenges the average American family in Bennington faces. Morris, who was 37 at the time, is wearing a purple blouse and a white pearl necklace. She smiles broadly into the camera and hits the kinds of notes you'd expect from any local candidate seeking votes in a working-class town like Bennington. I'm running because I love our community. I love the strength of spirit of our residents. I love the generosity of our community members. And I love our rich history. Morris got less than 30% of the vote, but it was enough to win her one of the district's two seats in the House of Representatives. I think this community was pretty excited to have her as our representative. So most people I know anyway were excited to vote for her. That's Donald Campbell, who now serves as chairman of the Bennington Select Board. Why, why do you think folks were excited to vote for her? I don't know. She had an upbeat attitude. She uh, was working on some kind of edgy stuff. She was thinking about different ways of some of the stuff that's important to me, inclusivity and trying to figure out how we can make sure everybody feels welcome. Soon after winning that first race for the Vermont House, though, Morris's high profile would bring her into the view of fellow Bennington resident Max Meesh. And Meesh quickly decided he didn't like the fact that a black woman represented this mostly white community. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. You can hear the rest of this series, Breakdown in Bennington. We'll have a link at our website, nextnewengland.org. That series is a collaboration between Vermont Public Radio and VT Digger. After the break, three comedians from Massachusetts tap into their experiences as Portuguese Americans. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're going to wrap up the show today with an episode of the podcast Mosaic from the Public's Radio. Mosaic is about the American immigrant experience in Rhode Island and the South Shore of Massachusetts. This episode was hosted by Ana Gonzalez and Alex Nunes, and we'll let them take it from here. All right. So six or seven years ago, my Uncle Joe sends around this email to my whole family. And in it, he says, you guys got to check out this video. Get off my grass. And this one was called Portuguese People Say. And I bet it was extra funny for you, right? Because you're Portuguese. 
I am. It's after 10 o'clock. So the video my uncle sent around was this montage of different skits. A few had Portuguese people driving in cars and getting into arguments. Okay, yeah, go. Put your blink on. I don't see your blink. Then there were Portuguese people ordering at drive throughs That was my personal favorite. E um large potato french fry e um chicken McNugget. Ah, yes. Can I have a large diet black soda with white ice, please? And I thought this video was hilarious, like really spot on. The accents, the outfits, the guys in a few skits were dressed up like my grandma. You hungry? Want to eat something? So skinny. So you come to find out that the guys behind the video are called the Portuguese Kids, which is a comedy group from Fall River, Massachusetts. Just a quick ride from our studios in Providence. Yeah. And they've built like this crazy career out of being... Portuguese comedians, like, doing that as their main thing, making these videos, traveling around, doing all these live shows. Right. And in this episode of Mosaic, we set out to find out who these guys are, how they wind up doing what they're doing, and why they like dressing up like Portuguese grandmas. Derek DeMello describes his childhood as a Venn diagram with these three circles. There was the first circle for his parents, hardworking, church-going, money-saving Portuguese immigrants from the Azores. Then there was a circle for everything else, everything American, TV, sports, movies, video games, school, dating. And the final circle was Derek. The two other worlds always overlapped with his circle, but they didn't have much in common with each other. Sleeping over a friend's house, my parents never let me do that just foreign to them. They were like, no, we don't trust other people. <laughs> you know, just as simple as that. You know, like, yeah, no sleepovers for you. Put it this way, just because everyone's doing it has no consequence to my parents. Like, they don't care about me looking uncool. You know, to them, it was like, who cares? American families ate pizza and Chinese food. Derek's family ate caldver soup and Bifana pork sandwiches. Then there was the pop culture all around Derek. Right, kids on TV shows talked to their parents about their feelings. And families did group hugs at the end of each episode. Think Seventh Heaven. Right, and then in Derek's case, if he broke something around the house or he was being wise to his parents, he got smacked with a slipper or a wooden spoon. And then there were all those expensive gifts American kids seemed to get every Christmas. The gifts Derek didn't get. I would come home like, Mom, like, I want Jordan sneakers. Okay? You think I got a pair of Jordan sneakers? <laughs> Hell to the no. You think my mom would drop... I mean, back then, Jordans were like 75 bucks. You think my mom would drop $75 on sneakers? My parents literally... I grew up thinking we were the poorest people in the world. Eventually, that Portuguese thrift would give Derek some of his best material. Hey all, it's Derek with Tech Talk, and today we're unboxing the new iPhone 10, and I am super pumped. We got the silver 256 gigabyte unit here. Oh, uh, what are you doing? Oh, hey, Dad, I'm just doing a, you know my Tech Talk video. Where'd you get the money for this? Dad, I, I. Will you put it on the credit card? You already have four credit cards. What's this? Credit card number five? A thousand dollars for a cell phone, Derek? You still live at home? You tell Daddy and Mommy you can't move out because you don't have money? You got it. You're good. Are you going to sleep on top of this phone? Derek grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, the most Portuguese place in the United States. Literally and statistically, the most Portuguese place in America. Some people describe the neighborhood Derek lived in as a village in the Azores that was literally lifted up and set down in Fall River. 
it was hard pressed growing up to to feel cool being Portuguese because you didn't have anything representing you as being cool. This is Al Sardina, Derek's best friend. They've known each other for longer than either of them can remember. Portuguese representation, in my experience growing up, was very cultural and traditionally based. So it was like, uh, you know, uh, fado singers. <laughs> Growing up, Al and Derek don't really have these visible Portuguese celebrities or public people to look up to. But at the same time, they really felt like they were performers. Yeah, they were. So Al was always good with a quick one-liner, and he loved entertaining his family. I used to mimic my grandmother a lot. Time to make some soupish. Ah! Still that second hits you! In Derek's case, he says he took pride in being the funny guy in the room. It was always a way to make friends and deflect bullies. He is the most Portuguese man in the world. I don't always eat fish, but when I do, it's bacalhau. I was a fat kid, you know, and I definitely used, you know, my sense of humor to kind of like help me out of so many situations, you know. I was always a big chubby kid, and it was just because my mom's such a bomb cook, you know, like she was just making the best Portuguese food growing up. So it's all your fault that I'm fat, Mom. <laughs> My mom hates when I say that. She's like, stop it. So Derek and Al are these irreverent kids. They see humor everywhere growing up. They're jokesters. They poke fun at their families. And when they get to high school, they become really inseparable friends. And they start to dabble in comedy really as an art form. Al gets into playing the guitar. He's trying to write these Adam Sandler-type comedy songs, including one quintessentially Fall River tune about cruising the Ave. Cruising around on Plymouth Avenue, trying to pick up some wicked good chicks. They also start shooting funny videos with their friends on Al's sister's camcorder. I got your back. Calabunga! And when they graduate from high school, they both enroll at Bristol Community College, and they start taking video production classes. At BCC, they meet this professor who runs the local public access station based at the school. And he asks them if they want a spot on TV. Their best friend, Brian Martins, picks up the story from here. Derek and Al came back. We're like, hey, we have an opportunity to jump on public access. You guys want to make these videos and, and, and make it for them? And we we're like, yeah, you know, we've been doing this forever. You know, let's, let's try it out. And, uh, you know, they were... They were bad. They say dancing isn't a sport. I dare you say that to my face. Are you making fun of me, son? Are you making fun of me, son? Because I don't take liking that type of crap in my classroom. All right? I'm the boss in this room. So Derek sent me some of the uh, videos. Some of the videos, yeah. There's one of you being a dance instructor. Oh, my God. Yeah. I dance. Therefore... A little embarrassing now, but you gotta start somewhere. Yeah, true. So they called their show Ludicrous Speed, a reference to the movie Spaceballs. The stories weren't really scripted. There were a lot of inside jokes there and some pretty crude stuff. Yeah, one skit was called You're in Trouble. Uh, That was mostly about pee. (laughs) They also started doing some bits about growing up as the children of Portuguese immigrants. Once in a while, we were throwing these pieces called Portuguese Americana, 
which uh, were more the probably our most popular. We would show, for example, a car accident sketch that was based on something that happened to me, and what happens when an American family would how they would deal with this car accident, where the dad was very you know thoughtful and and thinking about the son's good health and making sure he was okay. Oh my God! Is that my Celica? Yeah, I'm really sorry that it was an accident. That deer came out and I lost control. Son, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, but the car—it's wrecked. Shh, son, that car is only worth three thousand dollars. You're, you're worth more to me than that, son. Then showing the Portuguese version, which happened with my dad, where you know, he was like, "I paid all this money for the car. Were you not paying attention? Were you playing with the radio? Like it was my fault, and not the fact that like you know, I hit a deer on the highway." I. I crashed your car. Oh my God! Oh Jesus Christ! Why you do this for me, Pa? Why you do this for me? I, oh, 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 your daddy's gonna have a heart attack. Oh, yeah, you're not having a heart attack. Be quiet, please. They weren't on air for long when the show started getting kind of big for public access. Yeah, the guys would go around town in Fall River, and people would actually come up to them and say stuff like, "Hey, we love Portuguese Americana," but then something got in the way. About a year and a half in, we got into what we call, and I'm putting quotes in the air, uh, season two of this TV show, Ludicrous Speed. And we, we were, I think across the board, we were all kind of getting this, this sort of pressure from our significant others at the time. Like all of the girls across the board were like, you know, what, what, what's the end game here? Like, what's the point of this? It's public access. Okay, big deal. Like, <laughs> what's the point? Their girlfriends wanted them to get serious jobs. Yeah, so the pressure mounted, and then Derek sat everyone down for this serious talk. I remember being in Derek's, uh, in, his, in his bedroom, in his mom's basement, and he's like, guys, uh, we're not going to keep, we're, we're, this is going to end. We're not going to do ludicrous speed anymore. This is, this is going to be the end. And that was it. The guys aired what they'd recorded already, and then they moved on. Al landed a job as a stock trader in Boston. It was a shot at something stable, a job he could do for years. And I hated it. <laughs> I didn't care about other people's money. I didn't care about investments. It was, just wasn't my game. But he started making friends in Boston. And then one day, Al was hanging out in the north end of the city when he found out about a place called Improv Asylum. It was a comedy theater where you could also take classes. He told Derek about it, and then they started looking into it. That kind of rekindled this idea of us being this group. And it wasn't going to be ludicrous speed anymore. It wasn't going to be, you know, filming things in our basement and putting it up on public access. But it was this opportunity to do it on a more professional level. They had to practice, script scenes, build sets. It was a lot of work. But they wanted to make jobs out of being live comedy performers. So they put in the time. In October 2004, Al, Derek, Brian, and some other friends were ready to stage their first show. Mom, Dad, as you know, Jenny and I have been going out for quite a long time now. Yeah, yeah. She's no Portuguese. (laughs) But uh, she's a nice girl. That night, Al and his friends did a mix of goofball comedy with some observational stuff, too. They also decided to add in some Portuguese Americana style skits. And that was what got the biggest laughs. Later, they decided their best work, 
and their best shot at a viable business was to focus exclusively on Portuguese comedy. So they did. And they took a new name, the Portuguese Kids. When I was a little boy, my vovo never bought me toys. She had so popsick she gave to me and told me to play with my shirties. My shirties suit. Fifteen years on, this is their full-time job. Al, Derek, and Brian split their time 50-50 between Fall River and traveling to shows at theaters and Portuguese clubs around the U.S., in Canada, and even to Australia and Portugal. Wherever there are Portuguese people, they go. Where the hell have you been? We ran a little bit late. Jesus. (laughs) Don't give me your attitude, okay? What time did your father ask you to come home today? Are we really going to do this right now, Daddy? What time? <sighs> 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. And what time is it now? It's midnight. Midnight o'clock. Wow. Oh Al, Derek, and Brian say all of their parents have seen their shows. Their mothers are known to sit together in the front row and talk endlessly to each other throughout the performance. I like the one they're singing. I'm Portuguese and I know it. <laughs> That's good. I like that one. That's Derek's mom, Anna. She's talking about her favorite Portuguese kids video. Can you sing it? <laughs> no, I don't know how to sing that. <laughs> no, no, like that. I think you know it. I know, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm Portuguese and I know it. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I, I, I work a lot. Yeah, I work second shift. Seven days a week. I own a single family house and three rental properties. I got money and nothing. Because I'm never going to show it. I'm Portuguese and I know it. That's the Portuguese Kids featured on the podcast Mosaic from the Publix Radio. You can catch the show at thepublixradio.org. Yo, full time construction. But if you say me, I'll do your plumbing. Got a rip in your jeans? Just call Vovo and she'll fix that scene. And that's a wrap on our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.